using music as a venue to tell a story about hope for the future is not a new thing with Afrofuturism. I think that's something that's very integral to Black music through American history. This is Here in Alabama. I'm Beth McGinnis. My guest is Chloe Smith. She wrote a Yale University master's thesis on jazz musicians in Birmingham, Alabama during the civil rights era. Chloe spoke with me in the spring of 2021 during the COVID pandemic. We were in my office at Sanford University. You'll hear students coming and going and birds singing through the open window. A quick heads up, Chloe and I talked about some hard things, including Birmingham's history of racial trauma. We also talk about how some Birmingham musicians spoke powerfully into that trauma through the language of music. In the last episode, Chloe identified two different streams of Black intellectual discourse, a separatist stream and an integrationist stream. Birmingham musicians contributed to these streams of discourse, Before Chloe told me about them, I asked her to explain a quote from her thesis. I want to pivot on that to turn to music, to think about music. I want to read a quote here. Highlighting music intensifies these discourses because of the special place of Black music in the fearful imaginations of the white opposers to integration. Something about Black music and its performers stirred violence and hate from white people. What was that? That is, I think, the kind of the key of why music serves as such a powerful example of these conversations. I think one of the best things I could do to point to this problem is to actually look at a quote from, it's a man named Asia Carter, who was the speechwriter for Alabama's governor, George Wallace, in 1963. He was the head of the North Alabama Citizens Council and he was also a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Asia Carter wrote that black music destroyed the entire moral structure of man, Christianity, of spirituality, and holy marriage. All the white man has built through his devotion in God. All this was snatched away as the white girls and boys were turned to the level of animal. Mm. And so there's this fear, not only of just black people and performing music, there's something about the music itself that is so scary to Asia Carter in this instance. There's something that he sees as maybe primal or something that he sees as below a human level in the music. And that could have to do with questions of rhythm and dance. It could have to do with just the style of music unfamiliar to him. But I do think that there's this there's this fear about black music and the power that it has over the white youth, especially in this situation. And also um, earlier in that quote, there's this theme of like, it's a moral corruption that it's dismantling moral structure of man and Christianity. Mm -hmm. And so this seems like a really drastic response, but I think it really highlights why this um, becomes such a point of contention and why black music is a site of such intense racial violence and trauma As hard as that is to read, I think that's a really good example of the types of problems Black musicians are facing when they go and perform in white spaces. I want to remind you that Chloe was reading a quote from Aza Carter. Carter was a speechwriter for Governor George Wallace and a member of the Ku Klux Klan. 
The way Carter spoke about black people is really hard to hear. I think Chloe is right that this dehumanizing characterization of black people exposes fear that leads to violence. Then, as now, black people knew how dangerous that fear can be. They developed survival mechanisms in the face of that fear and hatred. As Chloe learned about some of Birmingham's jazz musicians, she realized that they figured into the separatist and integrationist streams of black intellectual discourse she had identified. This does not mean they were in some ivory tower thinking about ideas for the sake of ideas. In a sense, these streams of black intellectual discourse constitute survival mechanisms. They represent the complex and sophisticated ways black people learned to live with white violence. In the last episode, I told you about a book by Resma Menachem called My Grandmother's Hands, Racialized Trauma and the Pathway to Mending Our Hearts and Bodies. You've probably heard that trauma can be passed down from generation to generation. But Menachem writes that resilience can be passed down too, and that music can promote resilience. Chloe told me how some Birmingham musicians participated in black intellectual discourse of the civil rights era, and how these musical discourses became means of survival for the musicians. The first musician took the integrationist approach. The first Birmingham jazz musician that I really dive into is the band director for Industrial High School. He is John Fess Wadley. He was born in Tuscaloosa in 1895. His own journey with music was not by much formal training when he was younger. He found his father's trumpet and learned how to play it, made a little band in his neighborhood where he had his friends follow him around and play with him. He ended up going to um, school in Birmingham for high school at the Carrie A. Tuggle Institute. And she was kind of a force to be reckoned with among the black community in Birmingham. She was notorious for taking young black men, especially off the street. And after they had maybe been arrested and instead of jail time, she said, let them come live with me. And so she would take these young teenagers and she made a school where she kind of fell into this Booker T. Washington tradition of trade school, really practical education. John Fetz Watley was brought up in this high school where the headmistress herself was super encouraging of his skill as a musician as a way for him to be self-sufficient. Remember this later. You'll see how John Fess Watley ended up teaching his own students skills for being self-sufficient. When John Fess Watley became the band director at Industrial High School, that was in 1917. He was the first band director the school had ever seen. He comes in with the first instrument the school ever has. It's a trumpet. And he ends up slowly building the collection, raising money for his students. And so many of his students become really influential forces in the broader jazz world of the United States. A couple of really um, prominent examples are uh, Erskine Hawkins and his orchestra. A lot of the members were from this high school. Johnny Grimes was a trumpeteer. And there's, there's a long list of musicians who come out of this tradition where John Fess Watley gave them the practical tools and education they needed to succeed in after high school. He had a strong emphasis on raising money to make sure that they had the tools that they needed to do that with their instruments, but also really emphasizing the ability to read music and becoming very proficient musicians who could sit down and play whatever they needed to. I think that John Fess Watley and his 
philosophical ideas are kind of hard to get at. You have to get at them through his students. As far as I know, he doesn't leave much of a record of his own personal thoughts and feelings about the situation in Birmingham as a Black musician. One of John Fess Watley's students also left very little in the way of personal thoughts and feelings, even though he became famous. We'll hear about him in a bit. Chloe had to do some detective work to find out more about both John Fess Watley and this student. Part of this detective work was following clues another student left behind. I was very thankful to come across in the Birmingham Public Library, there's this unpublished autobiography by one of his students named Sammy Lowe. And he writes about growing up in Birmingham, growing up in this high school, and all of the gigs that he would go participate in with other students. One that just, the first time I read it, it kind of knocked the breath out of me, was he and several other musicians, they're all young, less than 15. They go into this house party to perform for a white family and all of their friends. These students go into this household and they're playing music. And one of the hosts jokingly says, why don't you dance for us too? And it's this moment of humiliation of this isn't the skill that you're equipped to give us, but we want you to dance and entertain us in this way that you're not qualified to do. Sammy Lowe responds and says, I don't know how to dance. I don't have a partner. And the daughter of the white host steps up and says, I'll dance with you. And it's this moment where it's no longer a joke and they don't actually want this interaction between these black musicians and the white daughter. And the subject is just kind of dropped. That is a moment to me where you kind of see the role these black musicians have is not one of respectability in the eyes of their white customers. I think John Fess Watley knew that because of the promotional posters. Here's another clue to John Fess Watley's mindset, a promotional poster for the group. He has the one that, it's a poster, it features a photograph of nine black students in tuxedos holding their instruments, and it advertises the services of Watley's Saxo Society Orchestra of Industrial High School. And the poster boasts that the ensemble is a quote, a real jazz orchestra, but not that ear-splitting, nerve-wracking kind and it calls them a neat appearing group of men. I think that that kind of speaks back to what Asia Carter wrote about his perception of black music being something that is is grating. It's not something that's morally upright. And so for John Fess Wadley to kind of participate in that narrative and say, we're not the ear splitting nerve wracking kind. We're the palatable kind. We're the kind of white people want to hire. Kind of takes this step towards I believe takes a step towards this integrationist mode where he says, I understand that we won't be treated as equal citizens, but it's worth it to participate anyway. And that's just a movement that I don't think anybody in the separatist tradition would have been willing to make. So John Fess Watley carefully constructed an image for his musicians, an image that enabled them to perform for a white clientele. It did not put them on equal footing with that clientele, at least not in the minds of the band's white customers. John Fess Watley knew that, but he also knew he was giving his students skills they could use to provide for themselves. He was giving them self-sufficiency. He was giving them a way to live on their own terms in a world that was way less than ideal. I'm reminded of Duke Ellington and other black musicians who performed at the Cotton Club in Harlem in the 1920s and 30s for white audiences. Ellington developed his signature style largely at the Cotton Club. The club hired black performers 
but it drew criticism for the way it presented them. Langston Hughes, the Harlem Renaissance poet, said the Cotton Club treated black performers like animals in a zoo. He also thought the club starved out smaller black cabarets in Harlem. One of John Fass Watley's students might have agreed with Langston Hughes. Okay, so we've seen that John Fess Watley has this ability to market his students in a way that is more palatable for white audiences. One of his students, I believe, is in the separatist tradition and just would have had a big problem with this, as evidenced by some of his later thoughts. So Sun Ra is kind of an interesting problem. He's conspicuously absent from all the records that I found in the Birmingham Public Library. So I spent a lot of time sifting through boxes about Industrial High School and John Fess Wadley, and there's all sorts of articles. There's clippings about his students and where they go later in life and what they're doing now. And Sun Ross just not there. At first, I was a little bit confused by that, but I kind of put together as I started learning more about Sun Ra that this seems like an intentional move. I encountered later Sun Ra in his interviews lied about where he was from. For a long time, I found sources that say he was from Indiana. Sun Ra was the student I mentioned earlier, who was even harder to pin down than John Fess Watley. It puzzled Chloe that she couldn't find any records of Sun Ra's early life, even though she knew he had been one of John Fess Watley's students and he had played in the jazz bands at Industrial High School. There was plenty of information about the bands and the other students, but nothing about Sun Ra. Of course, Sun Ra wasn't his given name. He is born as Herman Poole Blount in 1914. He grows up in Birmingham, close to the railroad tracks, close to the location of the giant Welcome to the Magic City sign that was downtown for a long time. So Sun Ra was a pianist. He got his first piano when he was 11. His mother gave it to him. A couple of years later, he starts in high school at Industrial High School, and he becomes the piano player for all of the jazz bands at Industrial High School. He not only played for student ensembles, but he became the only student that John Fess Watley recruited to play in his adult bands out in Birmingham. He was a talented pianist. Sun Ra grew up in Birmingham surrounded by a pretty rich musical world. Not only in high school did he have this very impressive band director and surrounded by talented students, he also frequented black music venues like Tuxedo Junction. Tuxedo Junction was a streetcar crossing on the Ensley-Fairfield line. The crossing was near the Tuxedo Park residential community where Tennessee Coal, Iron, and Railroad Company employees lived. Dance halls, food, and shopping turned the intersection into a lively entertainment district for black workers in the 1920s and 30s. Locals just called it The Junction. In 1939, Erskine Hawkins wrote the song Tuxedo Junction. Hawkins was one of Fess Watley's former students who went on to have prominent music careers. For Hawkins, this meant leading a big band in New York City. The story goes that Hawkins used the song as walking music as bands changed out on stage. At first, it didn't have words but it was supposed to capture musically the bustling feel of the junction. With the song Tuxedo Junction, Hawkins looked back to his roots in Birmingham. Sun Ra shared those roots. He was very interested in music to the point that when he graduated from high school, he went to study piano at the Alabama State Agriculture and Mechanical Institute in Huntsville. He studied classical piano there and dropped out after a year. 
it was at this point in his life where he started a band in Birmingham and didn't perform. He just played for the sake of rehearsing, for the sake of creating music with his friends. In 1946, Sun Ra moves to Chicago. He adopts the stage name Le Sonera, and he begins a band that is the beginnings of Sun Ra and his solar orchestra. And it's with John Gilmore on saxophone, Rach, uh, Richard Evans on bass, and a drummer, Robert Berry. At this point, this is kind of the first moment where you see Sun Ra's infatuation with space. His first album that he released, or is an LP, it was called Jazz by Sun Ra. It comes out the same year that the Sputnik satellite is released by Russia in 1957. Several of Sun Ra's biographers kind of point to this infatuation with space in his young life. He was interested in also stories about ancient Egypt. And so both of these are themes that kind of feed into his Black Separatist, Black Separatist ideology that will come up later. You've probably figured out that Sun Ra was renaming himself after the Egyptian sun god Ra. This happened in Chicago, where Sun Ra was soaking up both the ideas of Black political activists and the Egyptian style of some of Chicago's architecture. We'll come back to the idea of renaming. So his music is kind of this ethereal combination of space, magic, and Egyptology. And so his first concert in New York City is in 1962, and he calls his group the Outer Spacemen. This aesthetic choice for his music is retroactively in the 90s termed Afrofuturism. It's a genre of artistic expression where technology and space are kind of seen as a mode of Black liberation, as a way to escape the reality of white oppression that he's living in currently. And it's an escapist move. It's an artistic move of reclaiming identity. And it's also, for Sun Ra, a story of his past. So growing up in Birmingham, in an intense environment of racial segregation and humiliation, as we've seen with his classmates, he rejected Birmingham as his homeland. He spent the rest of his life saying that he was born on Saturn, the planet, and that he crash-landed his spaceship in Birmingham, and that's when he was born. He called his birthday his arrival day. He had this story about a new homeland that is part of this Afrofuturist idea where not only is space the future homeland that Sun Ra is striving for, it's also a retroactive retelling of his past. It's one that erases Birmingham from his history. Chloe was beginning to understand why Sun Ra covered up his origins in Birmingham. He was claiming a birthright that he couldn't claim as a black man in Birmingham in the 1930s and 40s. There's still some parallels to make about putting that that origin story in a broader context of slavery in the Middle Passage, being relocated from a homeland into a system of oppression. A spaceship is the slave ship on the Atlantic Ocean, you know? So several of his poems talk about Birmingham in this very abstract way as a place that he crash-landed, as a place that wasn't truly home, of a place he didn't really belong. Sun Ra is kind of the musical extreme of a Black separatist. There's a poem written um, in 1968 called The Visitation, and there's one line from it that just, I think, is really powerful. He says, my image of paradise is chromatic black. Those who segregate did not segregate in vain. And so 
he, in his crash landing in Birmingham and his childhood in Birmingham, has seen how segregated and racially violent the city is and says the hands that did this, the hand that's created the society have made him believe that the future, the perfect future for him is one that is all black. And so it's kind of the epitome of this black separatist dream of instead of a pan-Africanist move back to Africa, it's a, a move back to space. It's a move back to this cosmic reality where black people are the creators of their own destiny and space is the venue for that. Chloe told me about a film that was made towards the end of Sun Ra's life. It's called Space is the Place. In the movie, Sun Ra finds a planet that can be a home for black people, a future in chromatic black. He goes around gathering black people to take to the planet. Chloe thinks Sun Ra's Afro-futurist dream came from a need to escape his Birmingham roots. He wouldn't tell people he was from Birmingham, but we know enough about the experiences of his classmates to know he probably encountered dehumanizing racism. Fess Watley tried to find ways to live within the system. Sun Ra wanted to get away. Because whereas John Fess Watley was content to market his students as more palatable to white audiences, Sun Ra says, no, I want to live in a reality that is for Black people made by Black people. With his music, Sun Ra painted a picture of Afrofuturist space. Not only like a Sun Ra fun to listen to, it's kind of wacky. It's got a lot of cosmic undertones and um, it's fun music. He's very talented. It kind of adds a sense of understanding, for me at least, when I listen to this music of why the story is about space, like why all this imagery, why why is the United States and the reality that he lives in not good enough? It's this story of space, and it's also a story of the future, it's a story of his past, and he's putting all these pieces together in a way that's not obvious to the listener on first glance. So how does Afrofuturism resonate back to Black spirituals and forward to Wakanda? Well, so I will say about Sun Ra specifically is that he rejected Black religious music and Black religion. And so he was not a Christian, did not consider himself one. But I do think that it's fair to kind of put this Afrofuturist ideology within broader stories of Black resistance. A lot of Black spiritual music comes from music that enslaved Black people might have sung on plantations. It's music that inspires hope for a future with Jesus as deliverance. It's music that is comforting. It's music that looks forward to a future that is better. There's this emphasis in a lot of Black liberation theology and a lot of Black religious music. There's a big focus on Moses and the story of the Exodus. And I find that really interesting that there's this like move out of persecution and especially if you think about the metaphor of like parting the Red Sea there's this movement of moving through water through to a better life and that's kind of like the same thing if you think about it with space it's a story of an exodus so even though Sun Ra would probably be pretty upset to be put into that kind of context I think that using music as a venue to tell a story about hope for the future is not a new thing with Afrofuturism. I think that's something that's very integral to Black music through American history. You may recall that Harriet Tubman, the conductor of the Underground Railroad, was called Moses. Like the Moses of the Bible, she led the people out of slavery. Many Black spirituals refer to the Exodus story, 
In fact, black spirituals are full of codes about escape. The plantation owners would have thought the spirituals were about Bible stories, and they were, but they had a deeper meaning, too. When I spoke with Chloe, I had recently seen the movie Black Panther. I thought it shared a common thread with black spirituals and with Sun Ra's Afrofuturism. That's definitely within the same strain of imagining a black future without the confines of white oppression. I think that's what it boils down to, where black people are superheroes, where the technology is there to create this awesome reality where the black people can define their own stories without slavery. And that's one thing that I think is so interesting about Afrofuturism is not only is it a story about the future, it's a rewriting of the past. There's this Afrocentric reimagining of history where Africa is the center of global civilization instead of like the West. And so I think there's this really powerful rewriting of history and the future in order to capture an identity that's not defined by white people. And I think there's something really powerful in that. There is something powerful in the way Sun Ra rewrote his history, redefined his identity, renamed himself. At the end of Resma Menachem's book, Menachem gives several practices that can help bring cultural healing. One is to invoke the power of names. Menachem says naming and renaming are powerful acts of reclamation because they re-establish a form of personal agency. Sun Ra renamed himself and rewrote his history. In so doing, he reclaimed his basic human right to define himself. We've already said that Sun Ra has this connection to Birmingham that he has purposefully tried to sever. He has created a story where Birmingham is not his hometown. Saturn is his hometown. A lot of his connection to Birmingham has just been a burned bridge. But... There's this really interesting thing, and if you look through his discography, he has a few songs and an album about Birmingham. Sounds like Sun Ra had a pretty complex relationship with the place he grew up. And so I was interested in his relationship with Birmingham because as a Black separatist who grew up in a very polarized, racially traumatic environment, I was surprised to see that, especially knowing that he was so intentional about um, avoiding Birmingham in his personal narrative. He released an album in 1965 called The Magic City. It's a instrumental album. There's no vocals. It's also in his discography kind of the pivot into a free jazz era away from more standard sounding big band jazz music earlier in the 50s. Big band jazz is dance music. It's also called swing. It's what Sun Ra grew up on with Fess Watley. Erskine Hawkins played big band jazz at the Savoy Ballroom in New York City, and he had battles of the bands with Glenn Miller and Duke Ellington. Big band sounds like what it is. The ensembles are large enough that it helps to have a conductor. Big bands play from sheet music, but they also feature improvisatory solos. Free jazz grew up in the late 1950s and 1960s. All jazz is improvisatory to a degree, but free jazz leaves a lot more room for experimentation than big band. In free jazz, musicians might leave behind any restrictive rhythmic or harmonic schemes. They might explore new sound colors and instruments, including instruments from around the world and even electronic instruments. Free jazz has this in common with avant-garde classical music of the time. Experimentation was in the air. It was through Sun Ra's album The Magic City 
that Chloe found a connection to Birmingham in 1963. If you look at the Magic City booklet, the liner notes that come with the album, the cover is this very abstract representation of the steel Welcome to the Magic City sign that Sun Ra grew up really close to. He would have seen that almost every day in Birmingham growing up. There's also an acknowledgement in an MTV interview that he gave that he said, yes, this album is about Birmingham. And Magic City, of course, is this nickname that Birmingham earned in its early days. It's kind of like the Pittsburgh of the South. Um, it's this slogan. It's a promotional slogan for the city. But Sun Ra kind of takes this Magic City and twists it on its head. It's no longer magic in an industrial sense. It's a magic, ethereal world that he writes poetry and music about. He has this poem called The Magic City, he wrote in 1972, where he says, This city is the universe. The city is the Magi's thought. The city is the magic of the Magi's thought. It's this very um, kind of esoteric poem. It's kind of hard to understand, but I feel like it's this very um, interesting view of a city that he grew up so traumatized by in some ways that he now has made it a magical wonderland where it's... It's a, so it's also it's a city that he's rejected and it's a city that he's mythologizing and it's a city that he's creating this very cosmic ethereal atmosphere around with his music. How does a composer create a cosmic ethereal atmosphere with his music? In The Magic City, the album, there's a piece called The Magic City. It's a 27 minute long collective improvisation that is basically just a rotation through different textures and colors without it has a form it's hard to pick up on as a listener. There's a lot of emphasis on color and emotion and texture. And there's this escalation through density and texture and rhythmic variation that kind of paints a portrait throughout this entire 27-minute piece. Let me clarify some of these musical terms. You've probably noticed that they're not actually musical terms. Texture, color, and density are all words musicians borrow from other sensory experiences. Think about the texture of a piece of cloth. A gossamer curtain has a very different texture than a thickly woven wool rug. That's because of the type of thread or yarn used to weave the fabric and how dense the weave is. Musical texture is similar. It varies depending on how many parts there are, singers, instrumentalists, different kinds of instruments, and how the parts relate to one another in the music. Musicians vary texture by adding and subtracting parts, or combining and recombining parts, or making different parts prominent at different times. Density in music is related to texture. A dense musical texture is thick with different parts. Density can also refer to the number of notes per unit of time. Think about the blisteringly fast and virtuosic playing of bebop musicians such as Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie. They played some really dense music. Kanal Tawari used the word density in this way a couple episodes back in Here in Alabama. We use color to describe sound quality in music. A saxophone has a different sound color than a piano even if they're playing the same pitch and volume. Maybe you enjoy listening to the music of the French Impressionist composer Claude Debussy. Debussy really focused on creating interesting musical color with new and unusual instrument combinations. Sometimes he asked instrumentalists to play outside their normal range. That also makes for interesting colors. 
There's a fancy French word for musical color. Timbre. T-I-M-B-R-E. Now, back to Chloe. There's this moment that reminds me of the John Coltrane saxophone solo, where it's this crying out of the saxophones. Chloe is referring to a piece called Alabama. John Coltrane first recorded it in 1963, just 64 days after the bombing of 16th Street Baptist Church. The piece is on Coltrane's 1964 album, Live at Birdland. You'll hear more about Coltrane's Alabama in the next episode. It's this moment of mourning and screaming right before it eases off into nothing. And to me, knowing that Sun Ra has this relationship with the city he grew up in, and also knowing that he went to school with the father of one of the little girls from the bombing. And there's also one of Sun Ra's biographers writes that Sun Ra kept up with the civil rights protests on the nightly news every night. Sun Ra isn't ignorant of what's going on in Birmingham. He has physical connections. His family's in Birmingham. His schoolmates are in Birmingham. Their children are affected by this violence. And so to hear in an album called The Magic City and a piece called this, to hear this moment of suffering and mourning, I just, to me, that has to be a connection. Sun Ra isn't writing in a vacuum. He knows what's going on. And to end this piece this way really sounds like the moment of the bombing, like this splintering, like this mourning. And I think in a lot of ways, like Sun Ra's entire philosophy is kind of rooted in understanding like how terrible of a place Birmingham was and trying to reconcile that, trying to rewrite it, trying to move away from it. And I think this moment in his music is a really interesting example of one artistic expression of how he feels about this city. Chloe is about to use another musical term, ostinato. It's a repeating musical pattern. One way to remember ostinato is that it sounds like the word obstinate or stubborn. An ostinato stubbornly keeps repeating over and over again. An ostinato in one part of the musical texture can provide a solid ground so another part can be freer. Listen to what Sun Ra does. The other element, there's a second track on this album called Shadow World that I just think is fantastic. There's this interlocking ostinato, so a repeating pattern with the two saxophones. They interweave throughout um, the entire song with each other. And on top of this repeating ostinato, you have these sound textures where it's very cosmic, very shimmery sounding. This Shadow World track inspired the title of my thesis, which is Shadows in the Magic City, because you have this rumbling world of complicated rhythmic texture underneath this shimmering gloss that Sun Ra has put on it with the other instrumentation in the band. And so to listen to this track, you hear the doubleness, you hear the turmoil underneath, and you see the shining magic city on top in a way that I think is really representative of his relationship with the city, that it's somewhere that has hurt him and it's somewhere that he's rejecting while still having this very cosmic, poetic relationship with it where he writes about it as a city of mystical intrigue, you know? Mm -hmm. It it was one of the harder examples to get at just because of the nature of the album. Mm -hmm. But um, I think it was one of the most worthwhile connections to really see, to try to plug Sun Ra into Birmingham in a way that he tried to get away from. And I think that using Shadow World to think about his relationship with the city kind of understands that duality, that it can both be somewhere that he draws artistic inspiration from while hating and wanting to be away from. Chloe did a lot of detective work to try and figure out what was behind Sun Ra's rejection of his Birmingham roots. 
I think that this detective work is kind of a byproduct of Sun Ra first and foremost crafting an image for himself as an artist. It is very hard to get at Sun Ra the person. Even a lot of the sources that I had to use to get at his thoughts and his story are kind of filtered through this commercial lens of the film that he makes, Spaces the Place. It's kind of this very dramatized, fictional version of what he might actually believe. It's hard to get at Sun Ra the person, but I think that's intentional. I think that that kind of mirrors the archive issue where he's erased his history. I think he's very intent on making this image of himself that not only in performance, but in perception of him like as an artist, he has just kind of erased all the practical threads of his history through Birmingham. And so when I try to make those connections back to Birmingham, it's easy enough on the surface to say this is an album, The Magic City, but I do think that he's made it very difficult. And the only conclusion I can come to is that the reason for that is a rejection of the of Birmingham. I think that it's probably a complicated relationship that he has with Birmingham. It's probably a complicated relationship because he's still writing about it. The Afrofuturist tradition is kind of a good lens to think about this problem because he's creating a new identity and thinking about space and the future, but also space as his history. And there's also this emphasis on Egyptology, and he um, actually visits Cairo, Egypt in 1971, and there's this really interesting moment there where he's recording a live show there, and the music just doesn't quite go as planned, the audience isn't receptive, and he doesn't go back there. It's not a very popular concert. There's this problem where the Sun Ra, that image that he's crafted for himself, does not mesh exactly with reality. I think in some ways there's... The image that um, he's trying to craft has some threads that are following that are, can, you can pick apart. Here's that texture metaphor again. This time, Chloe is using it to describe the detective work she did. I asked her a hard question about that. Putting that mythical Sun Ra image back into the context of Birmingham, I think is a move that he would have rejected. I don't think it's something he would have liked, but I think it's useful especially as a writer myself who cares about Birmingham and cares about understanding the history and the stories of these musicians here, I think he has one of the most intriguing ones. I think that it's not a story he wanted told in some ways. That's another thing, isn't it? Mm -hmm. To think about that. You see value in telling this story. First of all, digging up the story Mm -hmm. and then telling the story. But you're acknowledging that he might not have wanted this story told. What's involved in making the decision to tell the story, even if you think that he might not have wanted it told? That's a really good question. In some ways, I mean, I guess it could be interpreted as disrespectful to his wishes, you know, to like pull out those threads and try to piece it together when he was so intentional about pulling it apart. But I will say though, In the later parts of his life, writing more music about Birmingham, I do think that opens up this speculation to his relationship with Birmingham when he writes an album called The Magic City. Even though Sun Ra spent the first part of his adult life lying and covering up his history, I know that the reasons he did that were out of self-preservation. It was about crafting a new identity, a new way of thinking about the world that didn't have to acknowledge Birmingham. But I do think that in 1965, 
writing an album called The Magic City and using his artistic voice to talk about what's going on in the city, I don't think necessarily that in that moment he didn't expect anybody to ask questions, you know? And later in life, he would acknowledge that he did come from Birmingham. And he actually ended up the last few years of his life, he came back here and passed away here in Birmingham. And so while the response in his early life to Birmingham was to shut it out completely and try to deny that part of his history, I do think that the Magic City album shows a turning point maybe in his relationship where he can talk about it in a way that is maybe a little bit mythologized and a little bit esoteric, but it's still a conversation that he's opening up by making art about it. And I think that as a writer about music history, I feel that if I have the tools to try to connect that to Birmingham, when he started the conversation, I feel okay about finishing it, I think. I like Chloe's answer to my hard question. Sun Ra started the conversation by writing an album called The Magic City. He even came back to Birmingham at the end of his life and died here. He opened the door for historians to connect him back to Birmingham, even though earlier he had closed that door. I had another hard question for Chloe. You've used the word lying a couple of times when you say Mm -hmm. he said he was not from Birmingham. He erased all evidence of being from Birmingham. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, on the face of it, that is factually inaccurate. You know, he was from Birmingham, right? We can demonstrate this. It's absolutely correct to say that this was a lie. I wonder if there's another way to look at that, though, that it is a, a trauma response. My understanding is that there's a pretty common trauma response where you you retell your story in a way that helps you to survive and that this is functionally the way that he recreated his identity and his background Mm -hmm. was not really a lie but a a retelling and a redemption of his story a reimagining of his story that would allow and provide for his own survival, which is really what trauma survivors do. So I wonder if that's a way to look at it. I totally agree. Thank you for bringing that up. I appreciate that. When I use the word lying, I think that I was thinking of that in a one-on-one interview context when asked, where were you born? When he gives a dishonest answer. But I do think in the larger picture of him retelling and recreating his history, I think that that is one of the hallmarks of the Afrofuturist project is to use creativity and technology and stories about space to retell a story that does have a practical reality in systems of white oppression, but it's an artistic medium in response to trauma to recreate and retell that story in a way that doesn't center um, white violence against black people. I think that that project and that retelling, to call it lying is, adds a connotation that I don't want. It's a artistic expression in response to a problem and a response to trauma. Lying kind of implies that it's wrong, that it's a storytelling that is intended to deceive, whereas it's empowering. I think Chloe makes an important distinction here. If you look at the facts, you might say Sun Ra lied about where he was born and grew up. But his identity as a whole and powerful human being was true. Maybe he thought he couldn't have that identity and be from Birmingham. In a way, this is the opposite of the integrationist responses of Fess Watley. 
Watley promoted his student jazz bands in ways that would make them palatable to white people. As an adult, Sunrod didn't have much use for that kind of concession. But Watley cut a path for his students where there hadn't been a path. He carved out a way for them to be self-sufficient. He gave them skills and a means to make a living. You might even say that Watley gave Sunra the agency to forge his own path, even though Sunra took a different direction than his teacher did. Watley and Sunra are not the only musicians who worked hard to come to terms with Birmingham. In the next episode, Chloe tells about several musicians who responded artistically to the bombing of 16th Street Baptist Church. I hope you'll join us then. The music you heard in this episode is by two Birmingham-based composers, Joshua David and Blake Mitchell. You can hear more on their websites, iamjoshuadavid.com and blakearmitchellmusic.com. They're linked off my website, hereinalabama.com. That's H-E-A-R in Alabama.com. You also heard Wade the Water by the Crossroads Group featured in Season 1 of Here in Alabama. Listen to that season if you haven't already. I've made a Spotify playlist of some of the music Chloe discusses in this episode. Search Spotify for Here in Alabama with Chloe Smith. If you like this podcast, please follow it subscribe, or like it on social media. That will help other listeners find it. I'm Beth McGinnis, and this is Here in Alabama.